Welcome to Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm your host, Brett Levy, and I'm a researcher of civic and environmental education and a teacher educator at the University at Albany, State University of New York. Thank you for joining us today. In today's political climate, how can teachers create safe spaces for discussing controversial public issues? And how should they guide students to explore emotion-laden current events, such as police shootings of unarmed African-Americans? In this episode, I talk to Amber Joseph, a public school social studies teacher in New York City who helps young people navigate controversial issues, see the connections between past and present, and realize their potential as civic participants. As you know, Education for Sustainable Democracy aims to spread ideas about fostering productive, informed civic engagement. And the show's audience is growing mostly through you, the listeners, telling people about it. Thank you so much for that. The past six episodes have all gotten over 100 downloads with listeners from coast to coast and even outside the U.S. So let's keep growing. If you would pass along this episode or one of your favorites to one or two friends, that would be hugely helpful. Just click the share button in your podcast app or cut and paste the episode link into a text or email. Thank you so much. And as always, to check out other episodes or send me an email about the show, please visit www.esdpodcast.org. I might share your comments in a future episode. And now here's my interview with Amber Joseph from Eastside Community School in New York City. So Amber, it's really great to talk to you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. It's really nice to be here, Brett. First, I'd like to hear just in general about where you teach, what you teach, um, your students' backgrounds, your own background, just so everybody watching and listening understands who you are. I was born and raised in New York City, and my school is in Manhattan. Um, I've been teaching there for over a decade. It's a 6 through 12 public school in the Lower East Side. So I studied history in college, um, and then I joined New York City Teaching Fellows straight out of college. There is, unfortunately, a problem with teacher turnover in this country. So what keeps you coming back? So the thing that keeps me coming back, honestly, is that teaching is very stimulating. It's extremely intellectual, which I think is something that, unfortunately, is not often put into conversations about education. Teachers, like the teachers I work with, are incredibly thoughtful, incredibly intellectual people. I went to uh, an Ivy League school, and you know, when I was graduating, a lot of people were joining like Teacher America and Teaching Fellows, and it was like, oh, you're going to do this thing for like two or three years and really make a difference, and then go on to do something else. Mm -hmm. So I think there's often this idea that like teaching is a stepping stone to some other thing, but it's actually like really rigorous. I'm constantly thinking like the number of decisions that you make as a teacher. Anyone who's been in a classroom can tell you like you're just constantly thinking about your lesson, obviously, but then you're also thinking about like this student's emotional state, this student's body language. I teach middle school. So like so much middle school's logistics, like do you pass out the papers now or do you pass out the papers later? So it's, (laughs) it's never, it's never a dull moment for better or for worse. And I, I'm someone who really just likes to be busy all the time. So I, that's definitely the thing that's kept me coming back. But then obviously over the past four or five years in particular, 
Um, I teach social studies, I teach civics, and I teach history of the United States. Um, it's just become really, really important um, to, to teach the, the things I teach. Um, but you can also see tangibly day to day what goes on in my classroom is so applicable to the real world. Just engaging with like the great issues of the day, like climate change, racial justice, policing, gentrification, you know, it's really good in that regard too. I, I just am constantly thinking about all these different topics and how to like make them real for young people. So that leads me right into my next question, which is as a U.S. history teacher, how do you integrate current issues? It sounds like it's one of the things you're passionate about. I was a U.S. history teacher also, and I integrated current events into my classroom. But some history teachers and teachers of other subjects might have some difficulty figuring out how to bring current issues into their classrooms when there's not really a clear curricular mandate in the state standards or district standards to do that. So how do you think about Mm -hmm. meeting the goals of the district and state with your own goals of preparing students for the world that they're about to enter and their roles as civic participants? It's almost like a moral mandate for me, the idea that these are people who are going to go out into the world and you know, we have no control as teachers over how students feel. We can, we can, we can suggest things, we can bring things into their space, we can put things on their radar. But at the end of the day, like we have no control over what they do with that. And so that's why I think it's really important to approach civics education really as a study of like what's going on in the world right now. Because I think there's a responsibility on my part to do that, because I do think that's actually part of being an informed person. I think the ability to take historical concepts and actually apply them to one's life is a, is an important standard, especially in the past five years. I've mm-hmm. really felt passionate about that. I mean, that's one thing to teach about, for example, the history of slavery in the United States. Um, but if you don't connect that to like issues of equity and inclusion and racial justice today, then you're not you're not being real with, with students. I mean, so much of why we are facing the big questions that we're facing in 2021 is entirely because of the legacy of slavery in this country, entirely because of the legacy of like immigration policy and immigrant experiences. Like, so that's kind of what I like to do is to make those through lines. Um, I teach Mm -hmm. a population of students that's very diverse and diverse in lots of ways. I teach students who are of color I teach students who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, I teach in a district that has rapidly changed in the past 20 years because of forces of gentrification. And I'm just teaching people that are coming from lots of places and I want them to understand why things are the way that they are. I feel really passionate about that. Like I want my students to understand why the neighborhood of lower Manhattan looks the way it does. I actually went to school not too far from where I teach currently, and I've just seen tremendous change in the past 20 years. And I'm, I'm not that old of a person, but I think it's just important to, to have students understand that they are living in, in context all the time, mm-hmm. um, that nothing is random. Like we talk about this a lot in my class about inevitability, because I think a lot of 
adults are just like, well, that's just how it happened, right? Like the Civil War ended, the North won, slavery was over. That's just how it happened, right? And so, especially because I'm teaching people who are, you hope, going to become voters, I think mm-hmm. it's that through line of cause and effect that I want them to care about. Like, I want them to say, like, well, why is it that climate change is something we should be talking about? Why is it the minimum wage has not gone up federally in this country for so long? Like, I want them to ask those questions, even if they don't have answers to them. I at least want them to recognize that those are questions that you can ask. It sounds like when you're teaching history, you just habitually bring things into the current time. Is that your approach? So you might be teaching about the civil rights movement and then you bring in certain types of goals that have yet to be achieved, or you're teaching about great society and you also bring in you know, inequities that continue to exist. Yeah. Like, could, you, could you give an example of how you tie the past to the present? Yeah. So I teach a year long course and the first semester I've now designed it to just be purely civics. So what that means is you are learning about the constitution, <laughs> the way the mm-hmm. constitution sets up the three branches of government. Um, and then learning that the way government works is not just, I can name the three branches of government. So a good example of how I do this is I think it's really important to understand how government is laid out in the Constitution. I think it's really important to understand how a bill becomes a law. Um, I think it's very important to understand how the Supreme Court works, because in the second semester, then it's thematic and it's the history of the United States. Mm. So um, we start the second semester by looking at the way the country looked after the um, war uh, the Revolutionary War or the War for Independence. Um, and the big questions that came up in that, like, what is the future of slavery? Um, what, what what kind of relationship is the American government going to have with indigenous people? So we start with those big questions and I weave in the civics that we've already learned, right? So students mm-hmm. understand that when we get to the Dred Scott decision, the reason why the Dred Scott decision was so powerful was because when the Supreme Court sets a precedent, you know, that's the standard for all future similar cases. So I'm very lucky that I have a full year. I'm also very lucky that there is no state exam for history or social studies in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with that in mind, I just spent a lot of years thinking about just the fact that a lot of students don't feel connected to history um, Mm -hmm. because it's far away, it happened in the past, all these things. And so I found Mm -hmm. that starting the year with the civics piece, Mm -hmm. having them understand this is why the voting age is the way it is. Um, You know, I spent a lot of time talking about federalism, which is not a particularly like sexy topic, Mm -hmm. but it is so important for understanding the lead up to the civil war. Um, Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of scholarship that frames it as a question of federalism. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I've done. Um, I really, I think, hooked them with questions about the things they see in their day-to-day life, hmm. just so that we can talk about the history <laughs> later. <laughs> You're talking about essential questions that frame the history curriculum and also the current events curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, the phrasing of this question has changed over the years, but one of the big essential questions is, generally like what responsibilities does a government have to its people 
in the history of the United States, that is the question, right? Like, that is one of the questions around the civil rights movements of the 50s and the 60s. Like, what is the responsibility of the government to its people in the context of, like, who gets to be counted as people? You know, we start by talking about the three-fifths compromise at the beginning of the semester, because that's a wonderful example of literally how enslaved people were not considered people, full people. But then, you know, that's such an important parallel to then look at by the time we get to the African-American civil rights movement. And the question becomes, well, why, why is it such a big deal for the government to regulate like where people sit on a bus? Mm-hmm. That's how I think about it, because the reason why I feel really passionately about that structure is because when 2016 happened, um, the election and the fallout and all the big questions that came up as a result of that, I felt like when we started looking at the civil rights movements in the second semester that year, a lot of students were like, well, this feels like this period, right? Like they were drawing these parallels already and they were asking questions about like what can be done and and it was really important for them to understand that like oh the executive branch actually does not have all the power mm-hmm. right they already knew that congress is actually the lawmaking body mm-hmm. so i think just because and i know this also is obviously very dependent on geographically like where your school's located and the political persuasions of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm families and and that sort of thing. I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend like my school did not have people that felt lots of different ways about the election. But I will say that when people, when, when there's a general question right now, I think about like, well, you know, what do young people think? And, 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 you know, like, how, how do we get them to, to not be cynical? I think having an understanding of, of the mechanisms of government is really powerful. I think there's a very basic kind of civics that a lot of us got if we got civics at all that basically was just like understand that there's a legislative and executive and a judicial branch and um, you can vote when you're 18 and that's it. And, Mm -hmm. And I think for people to really understand why voting is important, you need to understand what voting actually is capable of. Mm hmm. And that's something I've had to reflect on a lot as a person who, you know, my first presidential election was 2008. And so that was a really, you know, hopeful time for a lot of people in this country. Um, And then fast forward eight years, and it felt like an entire repudiation of that. So I've also had to like think about the history of the United States as something that is not linear in -hmm. lots of ways for lots of populations. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're saying that the traditional form of civics is not really adequate for this next generation of youth. So what do you add to it that you think is exciting and inspiring to young people? That's a great question, because that also is a question I have to ask myself a lot, Mm -hmm. because we all know as teachers what it feels like when students are disengaged from your content. Mm -hmm. And that's just going to happen. Like You're going to have kids who are like, I hate history. Um, And whenever I start my school year, I always do a survey and I ask students what their experiences were. And I always get kids that are like, I hate history. It's so boring. Over the years, I've learned to not get my feelings hurt. So (laughs) then the question is like, well, how do I make you care? Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a really good case in point of this is 2020. You know, anyone who was teaching in 2020 (laughs) had to really uh, change a lot of things really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so there was the obvious 
disruption and horror and fear of the pandemic. But then in May, with the murder of George Floyd and the you know resurgence, I would use that word of of, of civil rights protests and and Black Lives Matter, I had a lot of students that were trying to understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were sending me videos of things that were happening in the street outside their buildings. They were texting and asking me, like, you know, is this a riot? Like those kinds of questions I was getting a lot. And, you know, it was it was happening in real time. So fast forward to this year, I decided that I was going to make a project about policing because I thought it was really important for students to understand policing as a as an entity, but also to understand the, the call to defund the police. Because a lot of students were like, I'm seeing these signs. Does that mean we're just going to get rid of police? And and I felt like it was my obligation as a teacher to, to put that into context. So I, I think that's an example of just how what we do is so important, but what we do also has to adapt to what's going on in the ground. And that mm-hmm. was not how I learned civics. I learned it as just an immutable thing with a lot of flow charts. <laughs> like how a bill becomes a law, um, you know, mm-hmm. checks and balances. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting to me because I was just interested in politics and government and political science, but it, it did not feel relevant to me. What felt relevant to me was leaving my school and going back to my neighborhood, which was majority black, but not seeing any of those kids in my classes because I was tracked into an honors class. Mm. Like that was real to me. I mm-hmm. did not understand the policies that had made that happen. Mm-hmm. And so reflecting on that, I think it's just important to give kids a grounding and understanding a lot of the invisible things that make their worlds the way that they are, and then hopefully give them some ideas, some case studies, some tools to make them change the things that they see around them that they're not happy with. Because eighth graders will be the first ones to tell you what's fair and what's not fair. Mm-hmm. Middle school is a very important age for that developmentally. Like things are fair or not fair. They're right or they're not right. And I think it is really important to give kids the skills to think about nuance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We, we do a whole debate about Abraham Lincoln. Does Abraham Lincoln truly deserve the name, the great emancipator? Because I have them look at primary source documents of some of the things that he said that then kids are like, well, that's really racist. Mm-hmm. We were talking about Confederate monuments well before the push to, to knock those things down was happening. And so I say all that to say that I think you'll find that kids are actually very interested in the world around them if you ask them questions in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so it's from years of like asking kids, like, well, what do you care about? that has really helped me develop my curriculum. Like I, I, you would be shocked at how passionate eighth graders are about taxes. Hmm. Like they don't have jobs. (laughs) (laughs) They've never seen a paycheck, but the big philosophical questions about like, well, like what's the point of taxes and where do they go? Like Mm -hmm. they feel very strongly about that. Kids get very passionate about the minimum wage when they understand what it means. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the kind of stuff I really enjoy. And that's the kind of stuff that kids remember when they come Mm -hmm. back and they talk to me, they don't necessarily remember the civil war ended in 1865, 
but they do remember that there was a lot of debates and discussion in Congress afterwards mm-hmm. about how to bring the country back together. Mm-hmm. So in your civics semester, you talk a lot about current events and you have students discuss mm-hmm. a lot about the things that are happening right now and what kinds of social movements have affected and can affect those things. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a really good way of, of putting it in context. Yeah. Okay. So the Black Lives Matter movement is now several years old and you've been teaching about it from the beginning and perhaps in other ways before it was called the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, could you talk a bit about how you integrate issues of the modern day civil rights struggles into your teaching? I am very lucky that I work at a school that I have colleagues that are also very passionate about this work and also very passionate about making history alive for our students. So in 2014, um, we were at a retreat and I remember sitting with some of my colleagues And we were just trying to figure out how are we going to talk about Michael Brown when students come back? You know, I work in the kind of community where it wasn't a question of if, it was a question of how. When you're teaching in that kind of environment, I think a lot of the groundwork has already been set. You know, I'm I'm totally aware of the kinds of places that people teach where maybe they wouldn't feel comfortable about that. So I I do feel like it's really Mm -hmm. important to say that. But, you know, because I, I do have that, community behind me, we we felt like we had to teach about this because kids were seeing it. That's the thing. Like the, the pictures were out there. The same thing with Eric Garner. The video was out there. Kids are watching things. It just felt very important for me to talk about it. What happens generally is now I feel like I have a pretty good curriculum structure. And so I have the, the points I want to hit. I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about policing. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. But over the past four years, things have been happening in real time. So an example I'll give is is January 6th. That happens two days after we came back from Christmas break. The storming of the Capitol actually was happening in real time when we were having a history department meeting. (laughs) So we were talking about something. I think about how to talk about the inauguration <laughs> and mm-hmm. then like everyone's phone is blowing up and mm-hmm. you're kind of watching on Zoom, mm-hmm. like people stop focusing. So mm-hmm. I think as a, as a civics teacher, as a history teacher, you need to have space in your pacing calendar to just, to not be so wedded to like, it. things have to happen on this day. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm-hmm. when, when, when certain things happen, and I think the insurrection is a good example of this, like you mm-hmm. do have to stop. Like you, you have to like January 7th, it was kind of just like, all right, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what we're doing. And I had, I had kids cause I was teaching on zoom at that point, like in the chat being like, are we going to talk about it? And then, you know, I had my slides ready. And so a lot of it was just being like, okay, I know what I'm doing on my calendar tomorrow is I need to talk about this thing. And then there's like resources that you have to go to and see like, who's got what. And then there's an email chain and like people are like saying, well, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to start with this quote. And here's this article that I'm going to use. So it is mm-hmm. a community thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that's a really long way to answer your question. But the short answer is yes. Like there are definitely moments where I have to stop everything. Mm-hmm. The anti-Asian violence that was happening in New York City was another example. I need We needed to spend the day talking about that. Mm-hmm. Because again, I'm in New York City. I have... Asian American students, but I also like I've spent the past three months talking about 
different ways that people perhaps do not feel like the government serves them. So it just felt really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense when students are learning about things outside of school that are related to your area of expertise that you can help them to understand it and contextualize it and manage their own feelings and thoughts about it. You said that you take the whole day to talk about certain types of topics like violence against Asian Americans. And I imagine you did this for George Floyd's murder and other things that have come up along the way. When you say you take a whole day, what is your approach to that? Do you lead them through a way of thinking about it or do you solicit their thoughts first? What's your approach? One thing is resources. It's really important to know where your resources are. I mean, I can't say this Mm -hmm. enough and I know people Mm -hmm. listening are very familiar with Facing History and Ourselves, but Facing History Mm -hmm. and Ourselves is a wonderful resource because they will have some questions for you within a couple of hours of something happening. So facing history is a Mm -hmm. great place Mm -hmm. to at least have some big questions about the thing that happened. They had a really great series Mm -hmm. of resources for January 6th. They had an amazing thing that they put together for George Floyd within two days of that happening. So I think that's one Mm -hmm. is like, know your resources. Like where can you go to just find some things that are going to be useful in the framing that you want to tackle Two. As much as possible, I try to think, well, what have we already covered and how does this event connect possibly to any of the big questions or essential questions that we've already explored in the class? So I sit down and I try to think about that. With January 6th, for example, with the insurrection, we had actually, we had done a whole mini unit on legislation and the legislative branch four weeks before. So it was like, well, remember this building that we spent a lot of time talking about? This is what happened in it yesterday. Mm -hmm. You know, and so some of these things can feel perhaps not as rigorous or intellectually stimulating as you want them to be as a teacher, but kids are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. So I I think putting whatever's happening within a context that students have that they've already covered with you is Mm -hmm, really important. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then a third thing is just it's a very different experience doing this online because kids are in their homes. You don't know mm-hmm. who's around them. You mm-hmm. don't know where your voice is coming from in the home. Mm-hmm. You don't know a lot of things. And so mm-hmm. that has also made me feel very reticent to immediately go in and start discussing something very, very fraught. What I started to do is I've started to rely a lot on reflection forums I make. Like we did this mm-hmm. for the Asian American violence lesson I put together, I like a lot of it was just like, just, just please fill out this form for me and tell me how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to read it except for me because, and like ask any questions that mm-hmm. you have on the form as well, because students are not comfortable unmuting themselves and just talking. That's just the reality. Right. So again, I'll point to facing history is a really good resource that has very much adapted to this reality where like they'll have if you're doing this in person here's some things to do if you're doing this virtually here's some things to do because it is it is very different discussing something that is so sensitive when you also cannot see people's faces yeah so Mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things i think about Mm -hmm. a lot when there are stories of police brutality or school violence or things that can raise fear and anger and concern 
Do you approach them differently than other types of issues? I imagine that you would want to consider, mm-hmm. well, how is everybody feeling about this? And am I hitting any triggers or do students need mm-hmm. to talk about these things in a way that helps them mm-hmm. feel just okay and not not fearful? Our students are actually exposed to a lot of things now. Mm-hmm. I think that's because of the internet. And so mm-hmm. the way I've started to approach talking about really difficult topics, I've really thought about this too in terms of my own longevity as a teacher and my own emotional well-being. This came mm-hmm. up at an event mm-hmm. I was at a couple of weeks ago where a teacher just flat out said, she's like, there are certain things I will not show in my classroom. And one of the things that she said was the George Floyd video. And and she was a black woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about like, well, you know, are you denying your students access to that if you don't show it? And, and I think one of the things I've stopped doing, I don't show lynching photos in my class anymore. I used to. And I, I, I totally understand why some teachers still might do that. And I'm not judging that as the wrong thing to do. I don't think mm-hmm. there's a right or wrong way to do these things. But personally, like I just had to stop showing those pictures because I was teaching a lesson four times in a day. You know, I had four classes and it just became a lot to just do that over and over again. And so I'm like, well, if that, it feels that way for me, like, how does it feel for like a, a, a black student in my class to just constantly be subjected to like images of brutality, images of brutality in my class, but then the knowledge that brutality happens outside of my classroom too. And perhaps they themselves have experienced it. I say all that to say that I really do think that as teachers, we need to trust that students will know what's right for them. I never showed the George Floyd video. I said, if you want to watch it, you can very easily find it. And kids mm-hmm. were like, yeah. And, and, you know, some students were like, I already saw it. It was terrible. And some kids were like, I don't want to watch it. Mm-hmm. And I think opening the conversation that way is really powerful because it, like I told my students, I was like, I'm not showing this video because I am not going to watch it. And I also don't want you to feel like we mm-hmm. have to do this all together as a group, right? If you watched it and you want to talk about it with me, we can do that. I will create that space. And we did have spaces and we had school-wide mm-hmm. spaces. But I don't feel like at this point in my career, it's fair for me to like voice those kinds of things on kids. And I don't think that's wrong. I just think that mm-hmm. it's like acknowledging that like the world is a complex place. And again, the internet is just so <laughs> readily accessible. Like they could watch it on their phone in my room in front of me now. That's something that's very different mm-hmm. than 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah, I think that's just a really important thing to think about at this point in in teaching. The idea that students are learning outside of your classroom, and I really had to like change my approach because it's like my job is not necessarily to teach you content as much as it is how to digest the world around you. And so I do think a big part of like civics education is teaching kids how to understand context. A lot of kids will send me TikTok videos. And they'll be like, isn't this Mm -hmm. video funny? And it's got like Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of historical inaccuracies in it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. what's Mm -hmm. funny about this video to you (laughs) is my first Mm -hmm. question. And then Mm -hmm. my second Mm -hmm. thing is, well, do you know actually what happens? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, Mm because this video is wrong, Mm -hmm. right? So I think we as teachers also need to kind of get off our pedestals thinking that we're the only imparter of information to our Mm -hmm. students because that's just not true. And you would be wrong to think that if you didn't show the George Floyd video, your students were not going to find some other way to access it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the same thing with Emmett Till. 
Like I don't show, when we talk about Emmett Till, I don't show the Emmett Till um, photographs. I say, look, you can Google it. You can go find mm-hmm. that magazine story. It's a very important magazine story, but I don't show them because I, I really want to give my students the autonomy to decide if that's something they feel like they need to see. Cause there will mm-hmm. be kids that will say, I don't need to see it. I believe it was really bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I really think like, you showing students that you trust them to decide what's good for them is also a really important thing um, developmentally. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Recently, we spoke in a webinar about ways to guide discussions of controversial issues in classrooms when students disagree with each other. So how do you plan and manage these types of discussions? You spoke earlier about the defund the police movement and students having different perspectives on that. I'm sure there are a lot of other issues that they might disagree on. How do you plan and enact these types of lessons where emotions are going to run high? Students are learning a lot outside of school about these issues. They all have their different identities that they bring to the table. As an educator, as a guide, how are you thinking about managing those exchanges? I actually really like that you said as a guide, because I do think that's like so much of this kind of teaching. Like when you are teaching current events, or if you're trying to like weave in contemporary examples, guiding students through what's going on, I think is is really the approach. So the first thing is I don't start the year this way. In that webinar, I was really stressing the importance of basic routines. I don't think there's like some secret elixir that makes you like have a rigorous classroom where everyone respects each other I think it really is as simple as one person talks at a time right because Mm -hmm. if you've already laid the framework for how to have a discussion if you have the protocols and the routines down and you do it with simple things right like Yankees versus Mets if you're in New York City um (laughs) when you get to the moments where it's like if it's a policy question, which was something that we did discuss, like, well, is the um, the immigration ban something that is good for the U.S.? Like, these kinds of questions that kids can get very passionate about. Like, you've got kids that are like, yeah, like, I don't think people should be allowed to come from these countries. And then you have people in the room who are, well, my family is from that country, right? So when you get to that point, then you have to fall back on your routines, And I'm not going to pretend like I've run perfect spaces where people do not get upset. But again, I think the role, the guiding role of the teacher is like guiding students. What do you do when you're upset when someone says something you disagree with? And a big part of my classroom is like, you can disagree with someone, but you can't dehumanize them. And, And this has happened less so now because I think it's become more common. But like, there are students who will say, I just don't think two men should be able to get married. And that gets a lot of students feeling personally attacked and heated, you know? But at the end of the day, if a student has that opinion, that's the opinion that they have. It's just like, how do you express that opinion? I think a great question is always to ask, why do you feel that way? That's why evidence and sources is so important. I read a lot. (laughs) Like I read a lot of news. I have lots of different places I get news from. And I think being transparent with kids about that too is important. Where it's Mm -hmm. like, well, yeah, you can find someone that agrees with you in this source. Mm -hmm. So if you're saying that thing, how are you backing it up with other sources? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also really important. You know, I debated competitively in high school. And a big part of that experience was like learning how to debate on your feet viewpoints that you don't believe in Mm -hmm. and, and how to do that. 
and mm-hmm. how to how to make it sound persuasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that those are experiences that students should have. Like, what does it feel like to listen to someone who's saying something you fundamentally disbelieve? You have you have to listen to it, right? Um, I think that's a very different mandate than saying you have to sit in a room where someone is actively dehumanizing you, right? So mm-hmm. a big thing that we talk about in my classroom is language. Um, you know, when we when we did a whole unit on immigration, you know, one of the things that we began early with was we are using the term undocumented people. We're not using the term the illegals, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and I, I think, again, that goes a long way too towards like fostering the kinds of discourse that you want in a classroom. There are just certain things that I think you have to be very firm on and kids mm-hmm. will respect you for that. They're like, okay, mm-hmm. like Amber, Amber will let me say this in, in the mm-hmm. room mm-hmm. because she values my opinion. And we've had, we have a classroom community. We're all going to listen to each other. And that's why the protocols are so important. Could you clarify what the protocols are? Yeah, there's like so many different exciting mm-hmm. protocols for discussion. Mm-hmm. I like to go around the room. You know, if I have a classroom of 25 kids, it's like, okay, like, here's the big question. The question's on the screen. Here are different things you might be thinking about to answer this question. Um, I'll give everyone two minutes to write. Journaling is so important, I think, in civics classes, because it at least gives people mm-hmm. space to collect their thoughts. I think mm-hmm. this is like a great thing in life, too. <laughs> it's just like, it's just really nice to sit and think. <laughs> And just be with yourself. Yeah. Um, and I say that too. It's like, it doesn't necessarily matter how much you write. No one's going to read it except for you. But just like answer this question in your notebook. And then you solicit responses, right? And one of the things is just that like, I don't want any one person to dominate the conversation. We all know what it feels like when there's like the five kids in the room who love to talk all the time. It's like, okay, here's our big question. We journaled about it. I'd love for people to share their thoughts. Oh, it's the same five kids. Um, okay, we'll start with that they can all talk. And then it's like, okay, anyone else? Because I think that's also part of it is that you, you need to create that community in your room where everyone's thoughts are valid. And journaling is a simple way to foster that. I think doing these kinds of things over and over again also fosters the feeling that kids have that your room is safe. You don't mm-hmm. want to just bust out a journal protocol when it is the January 6th insurrection for the first time and say, okay, like, what do you think about these people climbing the walls of the Capitol? <laughs> mm-hmm. That kind of routine is just really important. You mentioned that nobody can be dehumanized. And I wonder about that because it seems like it could be a vague boundary. And I'm not going to deny the reality mm-hmm. of that. An example of dehumanization in my room would be if someone has chosen pronouns pronouns that they like to go by Mm. pronouns that Mm -hmm. that is that that's who they are that's what they want to be called and someone just refuses to do that Mm -hmm. in the moment of a heated debate that to me is an example of dehumanization because that's personal it's not the idea the person is expressing at that point it is literally Mm -hmm. their identity that to me is Mm -hmm. the line I think, yes, you can definitely have conversations in your room where people can be really offended by ideas. We're, we're discussing the First Amendment right now in my, in my class. And one of the things that comes up is the fact that offensive expression is protected under the First Amendment. And we've had lots of back and forths about that because kids will say, well, you know, that's wrong. You shouldn't be able to do that. But 
the counter argument is like, well, what's offensive to you may not necessarily be offensive to someone else. I think a lot about that because the last thing I would ever want someone to feel in my classroom is like it was a free for all and someone piled on them. But Mm -hmm. it's okay to be offended by an idea. And I think, again, it's like building the frameworks and the protocols in your room to make that clear. It's like, yes, we can disagree, but the disagreement does not cross the line into like criticizing somebody's personal identities or the things that make them who they are. You know, if we're discussing the Muslim ban and that there's a student in the room who was, uh, who's hijabi and this has happened before, it's like you can't, <laughs> you can't single that student out as an example of a person <laughs> that is potentially mm-hmm. being kept out of America, right? That, then that becomes personal. So as much as possible, yeah. I do try to guide students into evidence-based discussion. Like I like keep it in the text, like where are you seeing that? What does it actually say? Can you quote that please? Mm-hmm. To build the idea that like we don't just talk on the fly about serious things. Mm-hmm. This makes a lot of sense. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if a student crossed the line or not, but yes. I'm going to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I've been there too as a teacher. Yeah. And this is the thing I think people don't understand about classroom teaching is that so much of it is, it is in the moment, right? So mm-hmm. I had, I had a year, this was the 2016 school year. So September of 2016 to June of 2017, everything was potentially a tinderbox because I had a lot of students who were very anti-Trump, but I also had a very vocal contingent of students who were very much in favor of him being president. And a lot of those students were not the students you would necessarily assume they were of color. It was just a tinderbox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that mm-hmm. was a year that made me feel Like, I really learned a lot about discussion because I really had Mm -hmm. to sit and think about how am I asking this question and who's going to raise their hand first. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's also part of it is knowing your students (laughs) and knowing that class, because we've all had classes where we're like, this is going to have to be very different than it was in the two classes before because of who's in the room and the time of day. And mm-hmm. sometimes even the weather. <laughs> so, have they gotten their I, energy out or not? Exactly. You know, or they like, have to what let was it out? for yeah. lunch? Mm-hmm, what was mm-hmm. for lunch that day? Mm-hmm. Like, did they have a substitute right before? Like, these yeah. are all things you kind of need to have your feelers out for. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, like, that's something you can't plan for. But this is why having really tight questioning is so important. I learned a lot that year where I really had to script out questions because I also had some students who really like to play with language. Mm. Right. And they're like, well, you said this. That's like, man, I did say that because I was trying to figure out how to ask a question to not make so-and-so shoot up their hands with a smirk on their face. (laughs) Yeah. It's a balancing act. Mm -hmm. Again, it's, it's such a balancing act. And that's why I, I do, I do do it. It's, it's never a dull moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and kids feel that too. I mean, mm-hmm. they feel like we're going to talk about some real things. I do start my classes this way every year 
where it's like, we're going to talk about some controversial things. Mm -hmm. Controversy is a vocabulary word. (laughs) And it's just like, oh, whatever. Like, it's just vocabulary. But then by like three months in, it's like, well, minimum wage is a controversial issue. (laughs) Gun control is a controversial issue. We're going to have different viewpoints about it. Right. So it is like at least building the understanding that, yeah, like you thought you guys thought I was playing. <laughs> like You thought I was joking when I said we're going to like have some fights in this room. Mm-hmm. But no, we are because you will be shocked by how much you actually care about things like the voting age. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Amber. It's been such a pleasure to be interviewed by you and having you ask these amazing questions. It kept me on my toes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Amber Joseph, an eighth grade teacher at East Side Community School in New York City. Please check out the show notes for links to more information and media, including Amber's article on teaching during the pandemic, my article on generating dynamic classroom discussions, and a webinar that Amber and I did with other educators on teaching about controversial public issues. And this is Education for Sustainable Democracy. I'm Brett Levy. To get more information about the show, check out other episodes, or send me a comment or question, please visit www.esdpodcast.org. That's esdpodcast.org. Thanks to all of you for listening and subscribing. And please remember to help spread the word about the show by sharing an episode with a friend or two. That's the main way that people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much and have a great day.